0: and the mercies that are new every morning and we thank you that we can gather together here in freedom to study more about your word and both the Sunday school and the sermon and we also praise you and thank you that we can gather together and worship your name and uh, spirit and truth and we ask Lord that as we go about trying to understand the things of your word that you would be with us, that you would aid us and that you would help us think well upon the text of Daniel and also the other texts that we'll be wrestling with in our study of Revelation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to remind everybody where we were the first time we did the introduction. Remember, I said I wanted to give you all confidence in interpreting the book of Revelation. And in giving you confidence, what we want to do is eliminate the other interpretations that stem from the Maccabean view, that the book of Daniel was somehow all fulfilled around 164 A.D., and also preterism, that the events of the book of Revelation were fulfilled by 70 A.D. We want to show you that that's not true and that the futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation is a necessary conclusion from the Old Testament. And so we left off in Daniel. Three chapters, you always want to remember, that talk about this glorious kingdom that the book of Revelation is about. Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 9. So we cut the Gordian knot... Uh, of Daniel 2 and 7, we went right to Daniel 9. I, maybe I should say we didn't cut the Gordian knot, but we cut out the middle man. That's probably a better phrase. So we went right to Daniel 9. And remember where we left off? We left off with the prophecy of 70 weeks, and we said that the first 483 years were fulfilled at Jesus' first advent. So remember, in Daniel nine twenty five, he lays out that there's going to be 69 weeks of years until Messiah. But the beginning of the prophecy, he said, was from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That decree was given by Nehemiah, or not by Nehemiah, by Artaxerxes, as recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. And what we said was that was the best date for the decree because it fit all of the biblical data. That was March 5th, 444 B.C. Well, if you do the arithmetic, you have 173,880 days, from the time that decree was given till Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem on the very day prophesied by Daniel. So that was the 69 weeks of year. Now, what we have to deal with is the last seven years or Daniel's 70th week. And that's what we pick it up here in Daniel nine twenty-six through 27. So that's where I want to continue. I'm going to just jump right in here. Let me read what Daniel says. He says, Then after the 62 weeks The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, I want to start there. I just want to hold it and we won't go on until we examine this a little bit further. The first thing I want to point out is, notice he says, then after the 62 weeks. Remember the 62 is also involved with the seven weeks. In other words, there were seven weeks plus the 62 weeks, so we're really at the 69th week. Let me just remind you where that came from. Remember until the Messiah came, there were seven weeks and the 62 weeks. Does everybody remember that? That's where we left off last time. So we're really at the 69th week, even though Daniel is saying it's after 62 weeks because implied the seven weeks are already behind us. Is everybody with me? So we're at 69 weeks. So after that 69-week period, Messiah, notice, would be cut off. So the Messiah came at the 69th week, at the exact day of the 483 years, but notice the term after. Sometime after, he would be cut off. Now, how far after the 69th week, we don't know. It doesn't tell us, but after. Now, I believe it happened just four days after the fulfillment of, of the 69 weeks. Because remember, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan. They reject him. And he's crucified what? On the 14th day. He's the Passover lamb. But the big thing I want you to see is this term for cut off. That's the same term that you would have for cutting a covenant. It's karath. So remember I talked about in our study with Mephibosheth how God, and I brought the whole topic to covenant, loyalty, cassette, And I talked about how God had cut a covenant with Abraham. Do you remember when God cuts the covenant, the term that's used was karath. okay, karath. So you cut a covenant. So what's interesting here is Messiah will be cut off, and certainly it's this implication he's going to die. But it's very interesting that the Hebrew uses the same term for the covenant, the cutting of the covenant. So I want you to think, Genesis 15, God alone cuts the covenant with Abraham. He alone walks the blood path, does he not? So who alone in the new covenant walks the blood path? Jesus. Matthew 26, Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in what? In my blood. Okay, so I want all of you to turn your Bibles. I'm doing a little bit of an excursion, but it's one I want you to see. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. I want to explore this cutting. And I want to relate this cutting of Christ and his death to the imagery of circumcision. Again, this is kind of a little bit of an aside from our eschatology, but I think it's an important concept to think about. Colossians chapter 2, begin in verse 11. I'm in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes this He says, In him, he's of course talking about in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, let me stop there. What's interesting is in the Bible, anytime something is done by the hands of men, it's typically an evil act. Notice this is a circumcision that is without hands. As early as the book of Deuteronomy, God had promised that one of the things the Spirit would do would cut our hearts. He would give us a new heart. And so the circumcision that's being referred to here is without hands. In other words, it's not physical, but it's a spiritual one in which people are enabled to understand the things of God. It's really synonymous with what we would call regeneration all right so the key phrase there is without hands but notice he goes on by saying it was putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of christ now the phrase circumcision of christ is a curious one because it could be taken either as a subjective genitive or an objective genitive a subjective genitive would be it's a circumcision that christ performs Okay, so in other words, he could be the one who is the agent who circumcises our heart. Oops, I'm covering my mic. Because he is responsible for us. In other words, he's in charge of circumcising us. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit, therefore, regenerates us. But that's not the best interpretation. The reference to the circumcision of Christ, I think, should be taken as an objective genitive. And it's a reference to the cutting off of the Messiah that we're reading about here in Daniel 9 that Jesus Christ was cut off from the land of the living. Now, let me give you some, just a quick proof that I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Notice he goes on to say, talking about the circumcision of Christ, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, what's interesting is, if the cutting off of Christ is his death, notice you also have his burial... And you have his resurrection. So you have the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And what baptism does is it is identifying with all of those things. Why? Because we're with him. That's what baptism is about. And that's why we remember, as Bob has been pointing us to, we remember who we are in Christ, what Christ has done by being baptized once. Right? So here's the point. Just as in 1 Corinthians 15, you have Paul lay out the core of the gospel, which is, The death, burial, resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, we have the same formula here. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ in Colossians chapter 2. Okay, so the cutting off or the circumcision of Christ was where he was cut off from the land of the living. Now, the significance of that, of course, is, again, just as God alone walked the blood of the covenant the blood path and the covenant in Genesis 15, Jesus alone does the same thing. So think about circumcision then. Circumcision in Genesis 17 came after the covenant was already given, right? So it was merely a sign of what God would do, of the salvation that we have. It wasn't the salvation itself. In the same way, baptism is merely a sign. Now, one of the things I want you to think about in that Colossians 2 passage is that it's been distorted by some reformers, is claiming that circumcision, or I should say baptism, is now the new circumcision. And they use that as a proof text, the text that it is read to. you. But notice the circumcision that was being referred to was either the circumcision of Christ, Jesus' death, or the circumcision without hands, which is certainly a spiritual circumcision, the regeneration. So where do they get literal bodily circumcision like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the Israelite men went through? Well, it's not there. Okay, so it's a a proof text that doesn't work out for them. But again, I want you to see that this cutting off is not only the death of the Messiah, but it's a significant term having to do with, uh, I think, uh, the inference would be the covenant as well. So the the other idea that I want you to see is that he would have nothing. Now, it appeared, remember, even his own disciples left him. It appears that he has nothing. And then after that, it says, The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. And that's referring to the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. Notice who destroys the city. It's not the prince who is to come, but the people of the prince who is to come. The term prince there is Nagith. It literally means ruler. So notice very carefully, it's not the ruler who destroys the city. It's the people of the ruler. Okay, now why is that important? Well, who had the Daniel chapter seven, verses twenty-three through twenty-five? Did I give that to? uh, Was that you, Brian? No, I had
1: I had Daniel uh, uh, seven. What did you just say? Uh, Twenty-three through twenty-five.
0: Twenty-five. Yeah, started in verse twenty-three. Okay. If you want mine. Okay. Oops, and hold on a second. Let's make sure everybody else has turned to that too. Let's just go slow, and then I'm going to turn to it myself. Here's what I want you to think about is this shows that this is the, these are the Romans that are doing this. I want to show you why that
1: is. Did you want me to go through 26 like originally or not?
0: Um, I'm sorry. Just read uh, 23 and we'll just see how far we need to go. And then I'm going to have you come back to it later.
1: Okay. Thus he said the fourth beast.
0: Oh, yeah. And before, I'm sorry, before you even start, yeah. let me set the stage. Remember, this is a vision again that Daniel had. He was interpreting a dream and there was four kingdoms that would come about. Okay, the four kingdoms, again, are the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and then the fourth one is the Roman Empire. That's where Brian is picking it up. He's talking about this Roman Empire. So go ahead.
1: It was Daniel seven twenty-three. Thus yep. he said the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time times and half a time but the court will be
0: I'm sorry you can go ahead and stop right there so here's my point this is what I want you to see notice the people of this ruler who is to come and destroy Jerusalem the people comes from that fourth kingdom in context and I'll show you more evidence of that later so the point is it wasn't the ruler itself it was the Romans now that ruler the reason I mention that is this ruler is the antichrist but the antichrist comes from the Roman people Okay, now, notice even in Daniel 7.23, you have ten kings that come from the fourth beast. That, that's a kingdom or a bunch of kingdoms that come about from that Roman Empire. Okay, now, people today always wonder, well, who are the ten kingdoms? Are they the, you know, the European Union, etc.? Well, we really don't know. But people will know when the time comes. But the point is, the Roman Empire really is what gave birth to the Western world. And so as we see the Western nations, we see that from them we're going to have this revived Roman Empire, ten kingdoms. So what I want you to understand is this has to be read in context. When it talks about the people of this ruler, the people that are being referred to come from that fourth kingdom. That's what's being referred to, the Roman Empire. Now, the significance of that then is we we have is we have the Roman Empire that ends up destroying Jerusalem. Okay, now here's why I want you to take notice of the ruler. Notice it goes on to say and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What I want you to see, first of all, is there's an and. So there's an and between the 69th week and the 70th week, there's a gap. So the, the and there, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, that's a vav in Hebrew. It's what's called a discourse marker. And it's showing us that there's a natural break between the 69th week and the 70th one. Now, the reason I point that out is because preterism makes a break not between the 69th and the 70th week, but be within the 70th week itself. And that's a fatal flaw, again, of, of preterism. Okay, Now, the one thing I want to point out is notice the debate is who is this he that will make a firm covenant? Some would claim it's the Messiah. That's what the preterists would claim. The problem with that view is in Hebrew grammar, Hebrew grammar always sees the closest antecedent as the natural antecedent. And what's the closest antecedent to he will make? It's the prince, the ruler, the Nagith. Okay, so just grammatically, right away, you would be predisposed to say it's this ruler that he's referring to. Remember, the ruler didn't destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was the people of the ruler, the Romans. But where will that ruler, according to Daniel 7, come from? He's going to come from that empire. Is everybody with me? Now, further proof that this he who makes a firm covenant is not the Messiah... But is in fact this Nagith, this ruler who is the Antichrist. Notice this term make. The term make there is Gever. Anytime God makes a covenant, the term that's used is Karath. Karath bereath. Remember? We saw that up here, that he was cut off. God cuts a covenant with Abraham. Whenever God makes a covenant, he cuts one. But here, Gever is used, and Gever has to do, if I could put it in our vernacular, bullying. It's somebody who's a bully and simply throws their weight around and forces a covenant. Okay, so that would fit very nicely, obviously, with the Antichrist. He's a bully, and he's going to force the Israelites to enter into a covenant, and perhaps there's some guarantee of peace. What's very interesting in Matthew 24, remember Jesus talking to Jewish disciples, and he talks about this same time period. He says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. But don't be concerned, for the end is not yet. Why shouldn't they be concerned? Because in the first three and a half years, there's an agreement and protection that they have because of their covenant with Antichrist. So it fits very nicely. Now, the other thing I'd like to point out is, notice this covenant that he makes is for one week. It's for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he puts a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. The key there is in the middle of the week, obviously, would be the three and a half year period. Does everybody follow that? Okay, now where do the three and a half years come from? Brian, read your Daniel seven twenty-five again. Because remember, we have to read Daniel in context.
1: Daniel 7, 25, he will speak out. That he, I'm
0: sorry, that he is the Negith, the ruler, the prince that's being referred to here, the one that comes from the Roman Empire,
1: exactly. So read what he does. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time.
0: So it's not perfect. The time, times, and half a time is unequivocally three and a half years. Now, how do we know that? Well, the same time features are used back in Daniel chapter 4 when he talks about 1-7, Okay, when he talks about a times. Well, what's interesting is when you talk about times, which is two, a time, which is one, and half a time, that's three and a half. Well, that's three and a half years, and notice it corresponds very nicely to the middle of the week. Remember, Daniel's using literal numbers? So the middle of the week would be three and a half years. So Daniel 7.25 is three and a half years, and Daniel 9.27 here is three and a half years. Did you have revelation? that I, um, the Oh, you didn't have the Bible. I'm sorry. Who had uh, Jim
2: did? Thank you.
3: Hold on.
2: Revelation 17.
0: 12, yeah. So 13. listen to this, everyone, and then I want to have you um, read that in also 12:6, and then I might even have you do 13:5. But I want you to think about how many days that in the context here in Revelation chapter 17. Well, just read it, and I'll point it out. It'll be fairly obvious.
2: The ten, the ten horn. This is. Revelation 17, verses 12 and 13. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast.
0: Okay, stop right there, Jim. Did everybody hear that this this entity that's going to have this power given to them and the beast had ten horns? Well, that's exactly what... Brian was reading about in Daniel 7. Remember the Roman Empire had how many horns come from it? Ten horns. Those are the ten kings, right? Now keep reading then. That's why I want to establish that this is the same unit being referred to. Now Re- talk about, um, read, what is it, the Re- Revelation 12.6. 12, 12.6.
2: 12, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So the 1,260 days, three and a half years, and the hour are exactly. the same thing.
0: Exactly. Does everybody follow that? So here in Revelation chapter 12, what he just read, you have Israel fleeing from the persecution of the Antichrist. Well, it says they're going to be protected and nourished from the Antichrist, this is the remnant, for 1260 days. That's exactly three and a half years using 30-day months. All right? So that fits in very nicely with Daniel seven twenty-five that they're worn down by this Antichrist for three and a half years. And... This Antichrist then also puts an end of this in, what, the middle of the week, which is the three-and-a-half-year point. You see all the conversion of all these, these passages that teach the same thing. Also, Revelation 13, 5.
2: The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months.
0: Does everybody see the 42 months there? Revelation 13, 5. So who speaks these words for three-and-a-half years? The beast. The same thing that Daniel seven twenty five says... The same thing that Daniel 9.27 says. So again, here's what I want you to think about with regarding preterism. Preterism would have you believe, first of all, that Christ made a covenant for seven years. With who? Exactly. With who and why was it only seven years? Didn't Christ, when he made a covenant with us, when he says, this is the cup of the new covenant which is in my blood, is that not the eternal covenant? And certainly it is. So we have a very big theological problem. Now, how did they get around that? Well, they either spiritualized the numbers, but remember, we already laid out Daniel's using real numbers. He used real numbers from Jeremiah 25. Okay, they're also breaking a grammatical principle that is the closest antecedent is the natural one, which would be the prince, not the Messiah. Plus, they're not reading in context that in Daniel 7.25, it was this ruler from the fourth kingdom, the beast in Revelation 13.5, that puts an end at least of a portion of the covenant, he stops the sacrifice and the grain offering in the middle of the seven years, the three-and-a-half-year period. So clearly in context, I think they have real issues. Yeah, Bob.
3: Yes, I get modern Reformation, basically. And there was uh, an article in here by Michael Horton on Holy War, and he rightly rebukes all forms of post-millennialism. Oh, good, good. Okay, and... I would agree with him mostly other than he said, well, there's some point for Israel because of Romans 9 through 11. But what's lacking, in this is the amillennial position, is they think we're fools for any of this. Okay, forget it. It's all allegorized or not important or they would characterize us as being... Wild eyed speculators who go to prophecy conferences. Now, he doesn't say that, but that's what it boils down to. And And I once debated publicly someone who held to the amillennial position. But, okay, in my opinion, that's nice. If you were an amillennialist, all these problems are solved. Just don't bother with them. Sure. Okay? And here's the Fly in that ointment. Yeah, you have to then presume that the hermeneutic that we've used for everything—in other words, establish—we uh, have sola scriptura. Yes. That we have the solas: faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, glory of God alone. All of these things yeah. that were used to establish, rightly so, justification by faith. Yeah. When we come to certain scriptures, we throw that all out the window and go to some other hermeneutic. Right. Now, when I debated an amillennial, I said he was a wonderful guy. Yeah. You know, he ended up inviting me to preach at his church. The problem with that is that there's no evidence in scripture that there's two hermeneutics, one for everything else and another one for prophecy. Exactly. That's right. And we also have to swallow the camel— yeah. Of the first advent, details were fulfilled, and Scripture claimed that they were. Yeah, literally. Where is. Messiah was born, yeah. and very minute details from the Old Testament were fulfilled in the new. Right. And it says that, and they would agree. Yeah. But then when it comes to the end of the age, that all goes away. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you can spiritualize those times. It's very easy. Right. You just, poof, slide of hand, it all goes away. That's right. I don't think I have the right to do that. I would feel that I was engaged in theological malpractice. That's right. Because there's nothing in the gospels to indicate to us that all the details of the new covenant fulfilled in the first advent suddenly are not important in the second any right. of the details of prophecy And no one would believe that if you just read it.
0: Exactly. Okay,
3: and so don't get turned off by these goofballs that are talking about the Nephilim, our spacecraft. Right. Okay, I admit there's a lot of screwy stuff. I don't believe any of that. Right. I don't speak at those kind of conferences, and if I do, I preach the gospel. Yeah. But we still need to do what Eric's doing here and take this seriously in context for what it says and what it means. Thanks,
0: Bob. You know, uh, when you think about preterism and post-millennialism, amillennialism, that end up spiritualizing the text, realize that that's systematic theology, but it's not biblical theology. And what Bob is saying is, look, we have to have exegesis that supports our theological system. Now, I just mentioned that we have the natural antecedent here, to he is the prince. That's a grammatical argument. That's not a bias. It's simply grammar. Now, is grammar biased? Well, no. It's a truth teller. Okay, And all the other evidence um, contextually shows that the one who's making this agreement for seven years is the ruler who came in Daniel 7. So it's an exegetical argument. So now our systematic theology is based on exegesis, not just things that we don't like or we wish would be different in the scriptures. Let me just address one of the issues that Bob had raised when it comes to Reformed theology, one of the things that they are very leery of and they don't like, and this is, sits in their craw, is that they don't like to see a rebuilt temple that we see in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And the reason they don't like it, and I like their heart, they say, look, Jesus pay, you know, has paid the sacrifice once and for all. What in the world would we have a new temple built and a new sacrificial system put in place? But let me just explain theologically my response to that. Remember, according to Hebrews 10, 4, that the blood of bulls and goats can never provide atonement. So what was all that business of the Israelites having the sacrificial system in the first place? It was really to point forward to Christ. They were never efficacious in and of themselves, so much so that in Isaiah chapter 1, when the Israelites were giving sacrifices in a rote and vain way, God, and again, I paraphrase, he says, stick it in your ear, I don't want those sacrifices. He doesn't want them. Because they were never efficacious anyway. They pointed forward to the Messiah, the substance that the shadow pointed to. So now let's go to a new reestablished temple. And let's just hypothetically say that it really is established. There really is a sacrificial system again. And just as the first sacrificial system was never efficacious but merely pointed forward to Christ, what if the second sacrificial system merely commemorated and looked back to Christ? Still, they're not efficacious. They never were. So whether you're looking forward to the day of the cross or you're commemorating the cross, the sacrificial system was always not efficacious in and of itself. It always pointed to Christ. Yeah.
3: Yeah, which brings up another point that I would make. Yeah. And, I, and I'm agreeing with Horton other than yeah. he handily ignores a third of the Bible and doesn't worry about it too much. Right. But at least he's rebuking the post-millennialists. Yeah. And he claims that there's no nation on earth right now with a covenant with God. I would agree. Yeah, amen. Geronimo Israel's in rebellion against God. Exactly. And so they're one of, right now they're under the stoichia. Yep. Just like they were when Stephen preached. Yes. But um, just remember this. If we're correct, let's, okay, the millennials say there will never be a millennium. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's not going to happen. Well, then all these problems go away if there is a millennium as described in the book of revelation and yeah. elsewhere messiah will be here yeah. okay we don't have to have this all figured out because he'll be here we can ask him right he'll tell us exactly okay? so our whole theological eschatology doesn't hang on the nail of figuring out everything during a millennium exactly. i'm not too worried about it right. we'll ask messiah he'll tell us he'll, he'll be, be in here our midst. if there's yeah. no millennium then all of this goes away, and I suppose we'd be better off studying Romans.
1: <laughs> right, right. Thank you. We've also discussed the Bible points to actual sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. So,
0: Exactly right. Yeah, that's right. And that's what Bob is saying is, look, when Christ is in our presence, we'll be able to ask him. But I just want to want everybody to think about what the sacrificial system initially did. It never was efficacious. God commanded it. We did it. But it pointed forward to the cross. So what if you had one that commemorated the cross? Neither of them are efficacious. Neither of them are for salvation. So I just want you to think about that, that that's an answer that I think to me has always been pleasing. It was actually given by a Reformed theologian when I was at Bethel, and I thought that was very astute. He was a premillennialist, but he was actually very Reformed as well. Yeah, Mike.
2: I keep getting confused about the distinction, if there is one, between amillennialists and preterists. Are they one and the
0: same? Yeah, we're dealing with slightly a different issue because preterism is seeing... Yeah, preterism can be either post-millennial or amillennial, but preterism is looking to the book of Revelation and specifically Daniel's 70th week, and they're putting it all in 70 A.D. Are you with me? So preterism is a 70 A.D. and the book of Revelation was primarily fulfilled then issue. Amillennialism and post-millennialism is saying... Post-millennialism is very optimistic. It says basically you and I build this glorious kingdom, and then Christ just comes back and takes the reins. Amillennialism says there is no millennial kingdom. It's without, just like atheism. Atheism, And then it would just have you believe that in some sense we're living during this glorious time, and we're simply waiting for Christ to come. So think of amillennial, post-millennial is a millennial issue preterism is a revelation is it fulfilled in 70 AD or is it future now they go hand in hand but think of preterism as more of a Daniel 70th week and how do you interpret revelation whereas amillennial and postmillennial is a larger issue so
1: there's no clear-cut distinction between the amillennial postmillennial preterism
0: they're not not always because you have some preterists that are millennial and some preterists that are post so they like both millennialists and post like preterism okay or what the maccabean view of daniel and i'll show you that on a summary slide that i have in fact notice everyone has a uh, page but that's gonna you can add that to your all your papers that you have i'll be talking about that in a minute so does that help mike yes. okay yes. okay um, now, let me, let me wrap up this, this Daniel. And the last thing I want you to see here is, oh, first of all, let me just, at the end here, talk about what happens to the Antichrist, the beast. Notice it says, they will come upon him, or let me back up. It says, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. So apparently, there's this sacrificial system that's underway. But then it says, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. The wing of abominations is a very difficult translation. The wing there, though, it shouldn't be thought of as a wing in the temple. It literally has to... Remember in Isaiah 8.8, 8, there's a description by the prophet that the destructions that God decreed upon Judah because of their idolatry would spread upon them like wings. And so the wing here is used in the same way. It, um, actually, the King James Version has a very good translation. It's overspreading abominations or desolations. So the idea of it is, is it just, it's going to be so horrific. It overcomes and is widespread in the land of Israel. That would be the idea. Well, upon him, what happens is a complete destruction. One that is, de- is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So who was the one who made desolate? It was this Antichrist, the ruler. Now, what's going to happen to him? Well, he's going to be destroyed. Now, here's what I want you to think about. The good news is that Christ puts an end to him. And we read about that in several, several passages. Norm, you have them beginning with Second uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And before we have you read, I'll have you, um, everybody turn, if you will, your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Here's what Paul says about what happens to this ruler. Now, one thing I want you to think about is Norm reads 2 Thessalonians 2.8. That really eliminates the Maccabean view. The Maccabean view is that all of Daniel's 70 weeks was fulfilled in 164 B.C. Let me ask you the question. Is Paul writing after 164 B.C.? Yep. <laughs> so therefore, the Maccabean view can't fulfill all of Daniel chapter uh, seven or nine. Okay? So go ahead and read Second okay. Thessalonians two eight.
2: And then that law will be revealed the the And bring to an end the appearance of his coming.
0: Do you hear that with the breath of his mouth? The power that the Messiah has to destroy this one is simply with the breath of his mouth. That's with his word. Now, how did this Christ create all things? Was it not with his word? And he also destroys his enemies. That's what kind of omnipotent power Jesus has. Notice that is a quotation or an allusion in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 back to this Messiah who is both the descendant of David and the originator of David in Isaiah 11.4. If you want to read Isaiah 11.4, Norm.
2: But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked.
0: There, with the breath of his lips, he slays the the wicked, Isaiah 11.4. Now, I'm sorry, one more passage. I just want everybody to think about this. Revelation 19.15, in the book of Revelation, Jesus has come back. It's at the end of the seven years. And lo and behold, what happens? This is what it says.
2: And with with his mouth comes a sharp sword... So that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty.
0: Exactly, and so the reason I like Revelation 19.15 is it shows you that that happens at the end of Daniel's 70th week, so you have a time marker, and sure enough, that's exactly what is happening to this prince. He is made desolate by Christ. Second Thessalonians 2.8, Isaiah 11.4 revelation nineteen fifteen. 15 now one other item before i move off of here is notice there's a break between the 69th week and the 70th week how do we know that remember the 62 built upon that was seven already so we were at 69 weeks does everybody remember that and then you had this discourse marker of vav in hebrew and, and then you came to the one week so there's a natural break in the text between the 69th and the 70th week. In fact, I'm not the only one who sees this. This is a scholar named Miller, his last name, from the New American Commentary. He says, quote, The text also indicates that the 70th seven would not follow the 69th immediately. For example, Christ's crucifixion, the anointed one cut off in verse 26, and the subsequent destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, again, verse 26, would occur after the 69th seven, but not during the 70th seven, Revealing a gap between these sevens. Now, why do I belabor that point? Because preterism has the gap not between the 69th and the 70th week, but within the 70th week itself. And it's a fatal flaw. It doesn't correspond to the discourse marker that we have in Daniel 9. And that's exactly what Miller is picking up here on the New American Commentary. So here's what I want you to do is look at your little handout that I gave you it has three different views. The, view, the first two views are the views that I want to show you aren't true or possible, given what we've just studied. And then I'm going to show you the view that I think we should hold to here with a futurist interpretation. Let's begin with the Maccabean view. Again, these are the people who believe that the 490 years began in 605 uh, B.C. Now, that's strike one. Because remember, the 490-week prophecy was from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Was there a decree to rebuild Jerusalem when the first deportees were sent to Babylonian captivity in 605 B.C.? No. So they're not taking the text seriously. What's more, the 164 B.C., by the way, is when the Maccabees end up getting the temple back to Jewish hands, and they just kicked out Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the, uh, the Seleucid ruler. Okay, So he's, he's gone. All right, that's the 164 B.C. Well, notice the 490 years, the, the date you'd actually come to if you did the arithmetic is 115 B.C. So they're off by 49 years. That's what Jim was saying. That's just rounding off. All right. Well, God has ordained these scriptures in such a way that we've seen Daniel use real numbers. He takes them very literally. Okay. So the point is, the reason I put a question mark there is the 490 years doesn't work out. The beginning of the prophecies date doesn't work out. Nothing works out. And they just simply what? They spiritualize the text. They just round it off. Why? Because they don't take pro- In fact, most of the people that hold to the Maccabean date say, well, this is written after the fact by Daniel. Daniel actually read, it, read and wrote these things after the events themselves. So they don't have a very high view of Scripture. Yeah, Bob.
3: Yeah, the reason they say that is that yeah, I think in Daniel 11, there's such detail... About yeah. what happens after Alexander the Great's kingdom is divided into four four yeah, and then all these things happen, and the detail's so accurate that the liberal scholars came to the conclusion <clears throat> that Daniel had to have been written after right these things already happened,
0: right, so I have a very high view yeah, so the next view here we're going to talk about preterism. Now, the partial preterists believe that the decree for the seventy weeks began in four fifty eight b c the problem with that is the Nehemiah 2 decree given by Artaxerxes in 444 BC is much better. 458 BC was more about uh, the temple, it was more about the Jewish people, not the rebuilding of the walls. Nehemiah 2 works out very well in Artaxerxes' degree in 444 BC because it ends up happening in Nehemiah that he describes great difficulty just as Daniel describes in which the temple, or not the temple, but the walls would be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Okay, so the 444 B.C. works out much better. But nonetheless, notice their 483 years, their 69 weeks, ends up at 26 A.D. Remember, what was the problem with that? Well, the problem was in 26 A.D., that's three years prior to Jesus' ministry, and yet they have Jesus being anointed at his baptism. And we covered that last time. Because in Luke 3 it talks about how John the Baptist began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Well, Tiberius became emperor in 14 AD. So that pushes John the Baptist's ministry to 29 AD. And then Jesus' ministry comes slightly after that. So they're off there now. The other thing is they have to cram seven years into this time period. Notice seven years obviously doesn't work out between 26 and 70 AD. So there's a couple different views. Some preterists take the first three and a half years of the seven years and they begin it at 26 AD and they have it fulfilled when they believe Jesus was crucified in 30 AD. Okay, and then they take the break, the gap, and they take the last three and a half years and they put it to around 67 AD during the attack against Jerusalem. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, they're dividing the 70th week, but the gap according to Daniel, in his discourse marker, happens between the 69th week and the 70th, not within the 70th itself. Is everybody with me? Okay, now I don't want to get into all the different preterist views because there's many different ways. Some of them begin at 26 years, and then they have seven years where Jesus is crucified in 33 AD, and they get the right crucifixion date, but then Jesus has a seven-year ministry, when really he only had a three-year ministry. So no matter which way you slice it, the preterist just doesn't work out. So here's the view that I think that we should hold with Daniel... Chapter 9. First of all, the decree was given in 444 BC, March 5th. The 483 years is 173,880 days. Now remember, they're using 30 day months. And we know that because Jim had just read a passage, wasn't it from Revelation chapter 12, verse 6? When I talked about that three and a half year period, remember it was 1,260 days. So that's predicated on 30 day months. So the point is, the 30-day month is incorporated in Daniel and in Revelation itself. So what we want to do is use the dating method that the biblical authors use. Now, some people object and they say, well, that's not very very accurate. Here you have the biblical authors using 360-day month, or years, and where are they going to make up for all these differences, etc.? Well, Jim pointed out to me, I thought very astutely, after our meeting last week he said you know every single dating system whether it's the julian calendar or the gregorian calendar you end up having to manipulate at some point you have to have a leap year you have to manipulate the calendar to make the days work out so really what's the difference in how far you have to manipulate the calendar the point is in genesis when it comes to the flood it's 30 day months daniel's 30 day months the book of revelation is 30 day months either we're going to be people who use what the biblical authors use or we're going to have some grounds outside of the biblical text that we object to what i'm saying is we have to be people of the text to say no the bible uses 30 day months in its prophetic years we're going to use the same thing and when you have that then what's so amazing is that the mathematics works out so that when jesus comes back It's right in 33 A.D., or I'm sorry, he comes the first time, 483 years after this prophecy, he comes in on the very day prophesied by Daniel, the 10th day of Nisan, 33 A.D. Well, that ushers in what I would call, for lack of better, the the church age. And so what we're waiting for now is this imminent breaking forth of what? What was revealed in the gap the 70th week, the last seven years. And so what I'm claiming is that the book of Revelation is about this future seven-year period. Now, if you hold to the Maccabean view, it's all done. Revelation is all about the events that happened in the past. But what we're claiming here is that, no, the seven years is still future. The book of Revelation is primarily about that. It's about Daniel's 70th week. And I'll show you much evidence of that when we get to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. And evidence of that is, remember in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus talks about what? The abomination that causes desolation. The only passage that Jesus is directly referencing in his Olivet Discourse is Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, the abomination that causes desolation. So when does that happen? Well, we've laid out it happens in the future. Okay, and so that's exactly what we should expect. This is something that's coming upon the world in the future. Now, are there any questions at this point? I want to move off of this. I'll give you some implications, and we'll move off. But does anybody have any questions or thoughts or concerns or ideas? Okay, so what we've proven now is that the natural understanding of Revelation, or the book of Daniel shows that Revelation is still future. Let me draw some implications. Number one, Daniel used literal numbers taken from Jeremiah 25, 11. And therefore, used literal numbers himself. Anybody who claims differently, the burden of proof is on them. Neither Maccabean nor Preterist proponents do justice to the literal nature of the 490 years. They have to massage the numbers. They have to round. They simply don't take the numbers seriously. Okay. Number three, one, only one out of six promises made in Daniel 9.24 has been literally fulfilled, necessitating future fulfillment. Remember those six promises? The only one that was fulfilled was the atonement, the everlasting righteousness, the putting the end of the transgression and sin, and the sealing up of prophecy and vision. All those things still remain. Now, Jim had brought up a good uh, objection. Do you want to raise that again uh, about, listen... Remember when we were talking about the six promises, one of them would be that sin would be done away with.
2: Yeah, and at the end of Daniel's 70th week, sin's not done away with because there's going to be sin during the millennium, evidenced by the rebellion at the end of the millennium. So what were they referring to there?
0: Yeah, here's how I would handle it. Um, And this is something that is not alone to me. Uh, Miller, that New American Commentary, would handle it in a similar way. But this is my understanding. When you go to the book of Revelation itself... You have every time, and I'll show you this, by the way, this is going to be in my PowerPoint. Anytime you come to a seven, remember you have the seven seals, seven trumpets, and then you have seven bowls. Anytime you come to a seven, it opens up to the next one. In other words, you have the seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpets opens up to the seven bowls. But when you come to the seven bowl judgments, what do they open up to? Well, they never stop. In a sense, in other words, it opens up to the millennial kingdom, and then on into the eternal states. Okay, so think about this, and remember the day of the Lord. We talked about both the broad day and the narrow day. We've talked about that quite often. Well, remember in Second in, uh, Peter chapter three, Peter talks about the day of the Lord incorporating the dissolving of the earth and the universe. Well, when does that happen? It certainly happens after the millennial kingdom. Yet that's part of the day of the Lord, and so what's interesting is in the biblical conception, once the messianic king kingdom begins at the end of the Daniel 70th week, it considers everything from that point on as a point where the Messiah reigns, and so it kind of blends then the millennial kingdom at certain points into the eternal states, just as Peter did in Second Peter chapter three. So in other words, when you're in the millennial kingdom, yes, there's technically sin, but it's controlled. It's given retribution right away by God. In fact, remember in Zechariah 14, if people won't come and bring homage to God, he doesn't send rain upon their land. Even when the rebellion happens in Revelation 20, he calls fire down upon them. And then once you get into the eternal states, then you have no sin at all. Okay, so the point is, at the end of the 490 years, you're going to have this messianic age that brings in no sin. Now, I know its inception begins in the millennial kingdom where technically there are people who rebel, but it's dealt with, it's controlled, and then it's eradicated. And it's all seen within that messianic kingdom, so the messianic age. So I hope that helps. It's kind of a telescoping effect where the 490 weeks, yes, it terminates at a certain point literally, and it brings in the messianic age. But the messianic age looks forward to the day when there is no sin. So I think that's how we should understand it. Is that is that help?
2: Yeah, and the other thing I was thinking is maybe it refers also to the natural sin of Israel and reject Christ.
0: Yeah, you know, I thought about that as well. In other words, is it just specifically their sin? Because that would be done away with. The problem with that is qatah generally has to do with universal sin. Um, sin that's just an epidemic to all of us. I think that's probably in Paul's mind, even in Romans 3, when he says for all of sin. So, um, otherwise, that would be a, a good view. I think that would naturally fit better with... the. Uh, the transgression, rather than chata, the sin, or, or sins in general. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, I wanted to handle that. Is everybody okay with that so far? All right, let me move on to a couple other implications. Christ never made a covenant for just seven years. Did he ever do that? No, he has an eternal covenant. So, of course, that was the Antichrist who made that. There is textual and historical evidence for a gap between the 69th and 70th week, not within the 70th week, as preterists would have. Therefore, we can conclude that the last seven years are still future. And that's what this introduction is all about, to say, no, we have to have a futurist understanding and interpretation of the book of Revelation. Yeah. Whoa, whoa,
3: whoa. Whoops, we're going to get it on tape. Make my life harder later. If, I don't...
2: if Jewish nation, nation had accepted Jesus as Messiah when he came to Jerusalem, would you have gone straight into the 70th week, possibly?
0: You know, I just don't know. Um, you know, that's just beyond what's revealed. I... I know there's, there's different authors and scholars who would claim that the kingdom was really offered to them. Um, you know, in God's providence, he's in control and he made it the way he made it. You know, it's ordained from the beginning. But um, some say, for instance, when Jesus comes in in Luke 19, and he says, if you had, only, you had known the time of your visitation, but yeah. now it's hidden from your eyes. Some see that as a genuine offer that's then refuted and bungled. My problem with that is God's sovereignty because I uphold... The doctrine of election, God's sovereignty. So, as I would say, no, this is always part of God's plan that the Jews would be, for a time period, shelved so that the Gentiles would be brought in. Yeah.
3: Yes, and also um that idea that some dispensationalists teach, which I don't think is valid. Yeah. Uh, well, if they would have accepted it, then all of these things would have happened. Well, Isaiah 53 predicts the rejection of Messiah.
0: Exactly. Is God wasting
3: ink by saying something's going to happen, but then man determines whether it does or it doesn't happen?
0: Great point, exactly. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Um, Anybody else on that or anything else? What I want to do is I want to start moving on into approaches to interpretation. and I'll just get as far as I can get. I know we only have a few minutes left, but let me just talk about proper hermeneutics. The book of Revelation is often distorted because people like to change the hermeneutic rules of interpretation. And that's what Bob was really pointing out earlier. When it comes to the Gospels, when it comes to the Epistles, people generally agree, that is, people who hold a high view of Scripture as to what the rules are in interpreting Scripture. You take it according to the author's intent. And that's, by the way, called the literal grammatical approach to interpretation. A literal understanding of Scripture doesn't take a metaphor and read the metaphor literally. It takes the metaphor as a metaphor because that's what the author intended. That's a literal understanding of Scripture, the way the author intended it. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, what you have are texts that can be taken literally that end up being spiritualized. And what I want to show you is why people do that. And I want to give you some ammunition to refute that, both for yourself and for others that you may be ministering to. So I want to begin by talking about the different approaches, the historical approach. To the book of Revelation sees, and you'll see this, by the way, in your handout. It's in one of the sheets that you have where it shows the different views. But it shows really uh, the historical view has that Revelation chapter 4, all the way primarily to Revelation chapter 19, has to deal with what happens to the church during the patristic, during the medieval, during the Reformation, and even during modern church times. And so the historical approach tries to fit the majority of Revelation within the history of the church. And so because the book of Revelation isn't about the history of the church, and it's about Daniel's 70th week, they end up having to spiritualize the text. Okay? And they get away with that because they say, well, the text itself is apocalyptic. It's a genre where symbolism and metaphor rule the day. All right. Now, the second approach is what's called the idealistic approach. And what's interesting is it's very similar to the historical approach. However, the idealist approach, if you look on your, on your slide or your handout that I gave you, the difference between the two is that the idealist school sees something called recapitulation. Remember I talked about anytime you come to the seven, like you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, and you have seven bowls, the seven always opens up to the next one. The seven seals, the seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet opens up to the seven bowls. What they see is that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all recapitulating the same information, the same data. In other words, it's the same stuff. And so the idealist was saying that what book of, the book of Revelation is about is this constant struggle between God, His people, and the forces of evil. And so, and again, because the book of Revelation is really about Daniel's 70th week, they have to spiritualize the text as well. And so they fall into a lot of the same type of hermeneutical errors as the historists do. The third approach is the preterist approach. Again, they want to force the majority of the book of Revelation into 70 AD. And remember, I had mentioned that preterism actually began with Catholicism. You had the Reformers saying that the beast in the book of Revelation was the pope. What's the way to get out of that if you're Catholic? Say, no, 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 this is all fulfilled by 70 A.D. It has nothing to do with us. So preterism was a Catholic response to the Reformation understanding of Revelation. Okay, but again, I've just showed you the, the problems with that. So the fourth approach is the approach that I'm arguing for. It's eschatological. Eschatological, remember, comes from eschatos, meaning last things. It's a future approach saying, this is looking forward to the great kingdom when the Messiah comes. Now, what's interesting is when we look at your approach that you have, I'm just talking about you in general as people, um, what is interesting to me is that the approach really depends on the genre that you understand the book of Revelation to be in. There's three different genres that are possible. Apocalyptic genre, that uses symbols and imagery to convey information. So the apocalyptic genre was very popular during the intertestamental period, and what the... What they would do is they would write under a pseudonym, like first Enoch. Now, remember, Enoch was somebody who died way back in the Genesis period, but you have somebody who assigns Enoch's name to themselves as a pseudonym, and they would write this apocryphal work, and they use a lot of symbolism and imagery to try to say something real. But it was built on a spiritual uh, and symbolic approach. Now, why did the idealist, historicalist, and the preterists like that? because they want to spiritualize the text. Now, to be fair, the book of Revelation itself comes from the term ap- apocalypsis. It is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it is, in fact, typically and mainly an ap- apocalyptic genre. Okay? In fact, I would say that it's really not an apocalyptic genre at all. The next genre is an epistolatory. This is where you have a letter written for a purpose. When you read the epistles... The key to hermeneutics when you're reading the epistles, like whether they're Paul's or the general New Testament epistles, is that you're reading other people's mail. In other words, it was written by the biblical author for an intended purpose, and so your job is to remember what the purpose was, what the occasion was, because that all weighs in and in influencing how you interpret the passage. Okay? Well, there is an epistolatory nature to the book of Revelation, after all. John writes this to the seven churches, and the seven churches had different problems. So there certainly is uh, an epistle-type nature to the genre of Revelation. But the primary genre, I think, is prophetic. Now, prophetic uh, language and prophetic writing, remember, has to do with two elements, forth and foretelling. Forth-telling is a prophecy where you say, you're sinning against God. Stop doing that, repent, and return to covenant faithfulness, however that may look. Okay, that's foretelling. Foretelling is saying, thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen in the future. And so prophetic literature contains both. And that's primarily what Revelation is. <clears throat> Why is the futurist approach the best? And I'll leave it off with this. The book of Revelation is primarily a prophetic book. Why? Because the book of Revelation says so. Revelation 1.3, John writes, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Literally at hand or imminent. And so we see that it's called a prophecy in chapter 22, verse 7, chapter 22, verse 10, verse 18, and also verse 19. It is regarded by John himself, the, biblically, the biblical author, the one who was inspired, it's regarded as a prophecy. Okay. Now, we're out of time, and so what we're going to do next time is we're going to start getting into rules of interpretation. Now, I'm going to give you some, I think, helps that you can actually write down, and they're very simple steps that you can use when you're interpreting the book of Revelation. And when you come to see, see something that seems a symbol or a sign, I'll show you that there are certain tip-offs. And if you don't see those tip-offs, your default position is to take it literally. Okay, so we'll be working through that. And my, my prayer is that it'll all make, make us all better students of the word when we get done. So with that, let me just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for our day together that we could look into your word I thank you so much for the blessed book of Revelation that we really do, through its study, learn about the great hope that we have. I pray, Heavenly Father, for the stamina of my brothers and sisters here that they would all run the race well, that we would all keep our eyes looking up towards you. I pray for Bob in the sermon today and our worship. I pray that the worship would be for you before an audience of only one and that the word would weigh heavily upon us, that we would all understand the things that Bob has to say to us through the word so that we may be better conformed to the image of your Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.